0: Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitia's College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, Life, Theology, in fact, just about anything
1: Well, welcome everyone to another episode of GodPod, and um, today we are continuing in our little series on the creed. Uh, if you've been listening to GodPod over the past few months, or whenever you picked up the listening of GodPod, you'll know we've done a couple of sessions already. One on the uh, the general um, theme of creeds and their role within the Christian Church. We've done one on the uh, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and we're moving on to another aspect of the creed today, which is the article on. Jesus, the son. So I'm um, uh, going to introduce that in a moment. But before we do that, yeah, introduce our team today. And um, for those regular listeners of GodPod, you'll be delighted to know it is your old familiar friends. It's myself, Graham Tomlin. It's Michael Lloyd.
2: Not quite old, but hello.
1: And Jane, Jane Williams as well. Hello, Jane.
2: Hi, very old.
1: Yes. Exactly right. So well, talking about age, um, we are going on to this so to spend some time thinking about this um, um, very ancient but very uh, profound Christian document, the Nicene Creed. And uh, uh, today our theme is um, the second article of the Creed, which is obviously quite a long one. In one sense, you, you could say that the Nicene Creed was brought together. The kind of the main issue of debate around Nicaea was that after this particular bit of it, um, what the church is going to say about Jesus uh, the son um, but you will know if you know the, um, the article on the creed that it talks about after having talked about God the father almighty maker of heaven and earth see all that is seen and unseen it goes on to say that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ the only son of God eternally begotten of the father and then a number of other things to say uh, about Jesus as well God from God light from light true God from true God begotten not made of one being with the father and so on and so, this article on the Son. This is the second thing it goes on to say, uh, after its the, um, the, the the Nicene Fathers had spoken about the Father uh, Almighty. So today, we're just going to explore um, some of the dimensions of um, this particular statement and what Christians have believed about Jesus the Son, and what difference that makes to our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of the world, and what the significance is of this particular article. So. Um, Michael, Jane. I don't know who wants to pitch in on this one. Who's going to start first?
2: I'm happy to, because I think there's a reason why there's more about the Son than about the Father and the Spirit. Possibly two reasons. One is uh, more easily discernible. Uh, The Son is the one who became human and lived a human life, and about whom reports were written, and therefore there's more that we know about the Son in a sense, more visible. Um, But perhaps more politically and, and uh, more significantly. Um, it's the son about whom there were disputes and controversies in the early church and which they therefore needed to resolve. So that's it's because people were disagreeing about the son. Nobody much disagreed about the father um, at, that, at that stage of church history anyway. And in the Nicene Creed before it got developed at Constantinople, all it said was, and in the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing much to dispute at that stage about the Spirit. But there was a lot of dispute going on, controversy going on, debate going on about the sun. So that's why there's a huge chunk of stuff in there. Uh, and, it, and it's kind of uh, fraught with um, significance for those who know something about those debates and those discussions.
1: Obviously at the heart of those discussions was this debate over this particular word. Um, which in Greek is homoousios of the same nature, or um, sometimes as we um, of one being with the Father. And what was what was at stake in that word? Do you think why why was there so much debate over that particular word and what what they wanted to say about the creed? What was an issue in that? Do you think? I
0: mean, the whole question is is really um, such a big. This is the this is the bit of the creed that really changes our understanding of God, isn't it? Um, how the eternal. Son, one who was with the Father before all things, can become a human being, um, and that's um, uh, and that's the bit that I um, not only the fathers found difficult, but we continue to find difficult because we I think our imaginations are trying to squash God into a small human frame, um, and that's what the word is is trying to get around. It's trying to say how can um, these two apparently different things, God and human beings um uh come into this kind of connection in this one being of jesus christ and so the homo usios means of one being um and uh, and it, it's emphasizing the unity of the of the of the person of, of jesus christ with um with the godhead so it's it's really talking about how human the human jesus and the second person's trinity can be um identified with the reality of god and what's
2: the um, two things I think one is whether Jesus actually reveals God is, is he of, 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 you know, of the same substance the same order the kind of bit, same being as God and therefore able to reveal him or as the Arians uh, at the time were saying is he just kind of um, God-like uh, in which case we don't know whether any aspect of him reveals God or doesn't um, So it's revelations at stake. Um, Also, so is salvation. If we are in Christ, are we taken up into the being of God or are we not? Uh, And if he he is not of one substance with the Father, then by being in Christ, we're not necessarily taken up into the the divine being. And if that's what we're for, that's rather serious. And
0: if this article isn't, correct then there's no point in christianity it adds nothing to what isn't already known in other spheres this is this is why it caused so much controversy because this is the really um, shocking thing about christianity that we're saying um the divine transcendent being becomes human um uh, uh, without um, without changing its substance while it remains one with the father so as mike says this is Everything hangs on this. If, if this isn't something that we believe and trust in, um, then we aren't, there's no point in being Christians.
2: Not only does it create controversy, but it creates huge uh, insight and, and new understanding. Um, If indeed Jesus does reveal the Father, if being in Christ does take us up into the being of God, uh, then we have to rethink our whole concept of God in ways that I think are extraordinarily significant for our self-understanding and our our meaning and our role and everything else
1: yeah and i i guess going back to what you were saying mike about how um revelation is at stake in in this it seems to me that that what the creed says about the son sort of plays back into what it says about the father as well because um we are saying that that's if you like I think what the, what the, the Creed is trying to say is that God is both unknown unknown and yet knowable um that this the son is the son of the father the son re- reveals something of the nature of God he reveals the nature of God but he is the son of uh, of the father there's an element that you know God can never quite be grasped by human language we can never totally say again okay, we've got God we've understood him we've defined him in, in anyone yet because I feel like if we only had the sense of the father who is hidden behind the creation that we kind of read something about within the created order nothing much beyond that as well especially when we look at a fallen and broken creation that gives maybe ambiguous messages about who God is unless we have something else that tells us who who, who God is we would be struggling to work out um, who this God is and so I guess it's why Christians have said, ultimately, when we we want to know the nature of God, you look not actually at creation, because that's a kind of ambiguous, broken revelation of God, but you look into the face of Jesus Christ. And it's because there we see grace and kindness and love and gentleness and all those things. That's why those things are true of God. Um, So if you like, it's saying that on the one hand, yes, we cannot totally capture God in human language. There's an element of God that always remains beyond us, but yet he has made himself knowable by giving us kind of real God, if you like, in the person of Jesus Christ, which is what the whole meaning of homoousios of one being, is.
2: And the other way that it, the second clause, if you like, about the son plays back into the first clause about the father is uh, it means that God is eternally father. Um If he he didn't have, if we didn't have the phrase, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of of God, then the the Father wouldn't be Father, essentially, or eternally. Uh, And indeed, wouldn't be love, essentially and eternally, because he would only have become loving when he had a world to love, which was, you know, not eternally. Um, So I think it, it feeds back into our understanding of the Father very significantly.
0: And then also into our understanding of creation, doesn't it? Because we're told that, um, that uh, the, the Father Almighty who makes all things is Father Almighty uh, of this Son who comes to live in creation. So again, it, uh, although, um, as Graham says, creation doesn't reveal um, God, once Jesus has, once we know that Jesus, the full Son of God, has lived in creation, it gives the creation a completely different status in relation uh, to, to God. Uh, it makes us um, uh, people who are capable of entering into that relationship with God that uh, has opened up through Jesus Christ. This is the the presence of God in our history, um, which is which is it's, so. It's not surprising that people did get um, so hung up about it because they are saying something really extraordinary in
2: this state. And, and That connection that is made when the Son becomes incarnate, becomes flesh, is never given up. And that's what the ascension is about, which is also in, in, in one of the sub-phrases of, of, of this clause, really, um, that God is now internally and eternally welded to creation. So that he cannot now abandon creation without abandoning himself, because there's a bit of creation taken up into his very being. As a as a first fruits of the whole creation being taken up into his being.
1: It strikes right me that what this does is it it does transform our understanding of, of God. It understands, transforms our understanding of creation. It also understands our, or at least transforms our understanding of ourselves as persons. Because I guess we, you know, we talk about the persons of the Trinity—the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but it's quite quite clear in this by calling Jesus the Son, and the Son of the Father, and the Father and Son, and so on. These are relational terms. Um, you can't have a father who hasn't got a son or a daughter. You can't have a son who doesn't have a father or, or whatever. You know that, that, that If God, as you say, Michael, is eternally father, he's always had a son. Um, in other words, their personhood is defined by their relation to one another. And that says something quite significant about persons. And if we are persons in the image of God, that, that kind of cuts across a uh, lot of our very modern kind of individualism that says that I am somehow uh, self-sufficient on my own. I don't need anybody else. I can somehow find out who I am by looking inside myself to find my own sort of identity or whatever it might might be, that, that actually my relationships are somehow secondary to who I am, that I am kind of you know self-sufficient within myself. And that, but you can't say that about the son of the father. The son is the son of the father. You can't understand the son without his relationship with the father. The father is the father of the son. You can't understand the father without his relationship with the son. So in other words, their whole personhood is tied up with their relations to one another. And if you translate that onto the human scale, that says something about us, that we are, you know, that our relationships are not kind of extraneous to us. They're not secondary. They they make us who we are. You know, we are sons, daughters, husbands, wives, partners, citizens, friends, neighbors, worshippers, and so on. We are defined by our relationships with one another and ultimately with with God himself. We are persons in relation in the same way that God is three persons in relation.
2: And and the Arians had this slogan, which was there was when he was not, uh, there was a time when the son did not exist. He's a creature, creature, really, of an exalted creature, but but a creature. And if that is true, then um, the relationality of God is secondary. He exists and then he relates when he's got something to relate to. Um, Whereas orthodox Nicene uh, theology says, no, God is essentially relational. He has always been, he will always be, that is who he is. And we are made in his image as relational beings, as you were saying, Graham.
0: And I mean, it's always important to, um, I mean, heretics don't wake up one morning and think I think I'll invent a heresy. Um, today, what, what Arius and um, uh, and his followers were trying to defend was the transcendence of God. Uh, they were trying to say, uh, of course uh, God gives um, gives us lots of information about himself, gives us his love and so on in, in Jesus Christ, but that's not the same thing as God. Some kind of intermediary between us and God. It's necessary for God to communicate with us. And Again, what this extraordinary clause says is that's not the case. Um, God who is utterly transcendent is also able to be utterly present in what God has made, um, and it's it uh, it is uh, it is still the same true God that we are encountering. It's um, it is a faithful revelation uh, of God, um, and and I think it it, it isn't surprising that it caused so much controversy because I, I think we still find it difficult to get our heads around that, and um, that this is, uh, you know, of one substance with God that we're encountering. When we
2: encounter the second person of the Trinity. Interesting, I mean, although the irony is that that, although Arius was, as you say, trying to preserve the other person, the greatness of God, he ended up actually with a rather worldview that's rather similar to that of paganism. The pagan gods didn't want to get sullied by uh, direct involvement with the nasty, nasty physical world. and, but this is a God who doesn't need an intermediary, uh, who is prepared to get his hands dirty. He was actually prepared to enter that world, become part of it, in, in the person of Jesus. It, it's a profoundly different worldview out of the pagan world.
1: The the, the um, I guess the, the other thing that strikes me about this is it sort of changes the direction of the way the creed works. Because I, I just you know when I when you think about Arius, who was the the kind of figure behind the Nicene Creed, he was the sort of figure who was arguing that Jesus was, um, the, the Logos that became incarnate in Jesus was a created thing because, um, there can only be one God, there can't be two gods. Uh, and the idea that Jesus and the Father are of God that implies two gods so that, that that idea seemed to suggest that Jesus was, if you like, you know, and he used lots of exalted terms to say how amazing Jesus was. Um, he was the best the pinnacle of all creation the kind of you know the the um, the, the best thing that God has created is Jesus he's at a supremely um, exalted picture of human potential um, and it strikes me that we're, we're not short of those ideas we've got lots of examples of human potential and you know we've got heroes we've got figures who are great you know achieve a huge amount in politics or art or sports or whatever we've got massive pictures of human potential but they're always slightly disabling because you sort of slightly feel well, i, I can never quite get there you aspire up towards these these figures that that that, that show us that the, the human potential whereas i guess what nice nicaea ends up saying which is that, that this is jesus is not the highest the human being can achieve but this is God Himself entering into human life. In other words, it's not a striving upwards; it's actually a, a coming downwards of God into human life to transform the human situation. There's a radical difference in what those are saying.
0: And then again, what we're being shown there is—is is this really radical picture of God's love, isn't it? Um, God is—is um, is God's love is is so. Um, much the defining characteristic of God, God the Son and Holy Spirit, um, that um, God isn't worried about getting himself dirty um, in, in engaging with the world. God isn't worried about um, waiting for us to uh, ask God to come to us. God comes to find us. Um, and I don't think you can get a, a, a more. Um, Deep rooted picture of, of the love of God for what God has made, um, than that God comes to live in what God has made.
2: To, you, I think kind of a good example of that, I think, is, is from one of Hippolytus' plays where Artemis comes upon um, a dying human and, and says, Oh, I'm off. I cannot um, stain myself with the sight of departing breath. Um, well, we worship a God who knew. Departing breath in his own being, in his own body—that's um, a very, very different concept of, of what it is to be God, and therefore what it is to be human, um, and how we act to one
1: another. The other thing that tells um, me about this is, you know, the early Christians. Well, it doesn't come in, in the creed, interestingly enough. It doesn't come. You know, they added the Logos, the Word. Um, we don't find that in the creed, but the kind of idea that, you know, the logos, the yes. word of God became incarnate in Jesus. We get that in John's gospel. We get it in Justin Martyr. We get it in some of the early um, fathers. And it's sort of the idea behind this. And it was one of the debates around, uh, around sort of um, yeah, Arius. I mean, I, I was reading recently, um, I guess, George Steiner, I think it's a great sort of Jewish intellectual of the last century. He was, and his, he his argument was that um uh, that unless there is a prior word from God, then all our words are just sort of floating in kind of midair without any particular kind of resonance or or meaning. And his idea was that, you know, that because God has spoken a word to us, and for him as a Jewish intellectual, that was more to do with the the, the law, but, you know, translating that to Christian terms, we would think that as, as Jesus, this is God's word to us. You know, the thing that God wants to say to us is Jesus Christ. And therefore, the words that we speak are in some ways a kind of response to that prior word of God to us. Now, that word, again, you know, Shiner would talk about it as, you know, God's word to us in creation and in the law and so on as well. But we would want to focus that in in Jesus Christ. And there's a kind of more, I don't know what you, don't know what you make of this, but, you know, the, it's the idea that 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 because God has spoken a word to us, which is intelligible and that, that gives us a picture of who he is, what he has said to us. Therefore, our words have have meaning, they have purchase, because they are a response to that prior word to us. If there is no word from God, if we are basically alone in the universe, there might be a God out there, but if there is, we have no idea what he's like. Uh, Therefore, we are just speaking kind of slightly empty words to one another, that our words are somehow a response to God's prior word to us that sort of summons us and that invites us into a relationship, invites us into a kind of new form of being, and so on. Um, does that idea make some sense to you?
0: It, it does, actually. Yeah. Sorry, Mike. Carry on. Are you sure? I mean, and because it gives um, value to our response, doesn't it? It means that um, that the human interaction with God is something that God values god has uh, particularly spoken to us and um, in these last days in his son so that we can um respond and that makes our praying life mm-hmm. our liturgical life and so on it gives all of it, it it's not just something we do because it makes us feel better or something it is actually mm-hmm. uh, engaging with a reality that god has created so that it so that we can engage mm-hmm.
1: with god so that all our words in prayer or worship or even these words now are, in some sense, a response to God's prior word to us and kind of a making sense of the world the world in the light of that word that God has spoken.
0: It's what enables us to do theology, isn't it? To, to yeah. do, because yeah. This is a very dangerous enterprise, talking about God. yeah, As um, so though we had the faintest idea what we're talking about. But it's, I, I, it's justified because God invites that response.
1: Yeah, and our words are never primary. It is God's word that's primary to us. Ours are always responsive and reactive, if you like, secondary.
2: Of course, Steiner, as a Jewish intellectual, is painfully aware of the ways in which we abuse words uh, and, and human language can become defiled, um, as with Nazism and the way in which words were used there. And there's almost as if um, we need a word from outside to purify our own language and to ground it in that which is real and good as opposed to that which is in some sense unreal in other sense all too real and bad uh, and distorting and and diminishing and belittling and aggressive and hostile and uh,
0: yeah that's uh, interesting mike yeah, because obviously that is what we do when this when the word becomes flesh we abuse it um, uh, uh, and and Ending up putting the word, the living word of God on on the cross in, in in Jesus Christ, and then again, what God does is say, but actually, this is not your word. God raises Jesus from the dead. God is, purifies again that ability to for us to interconnect, reminding us that it is always God's prior word that enables this conversation to happen.
1: But Mike, you were talking earlier on about how it's almost salvation is at stake in this. Article. I guess you know, many listeners might think, well, hang on, isn't isn't salvation won by the cross of Jesus by the atonement? Um, uh, in, w- in what sense do you think salvation is at stake in this particular part of the creed? You know, the idea that God became incarnate in Jesus Christ. How does that connect into salvation? Do you think?
2: I don't I think the cross makes any sense unless Jesus is divine. In fact, it makes very bad sense if uh, if Jesus is not divine, because then God is not taking human thin and suffering into himself he's inflicting punishment on some innocent third party uh, and a particularly good instance of uh, human beings at that Uh, so it turns a a movement of love into a movement of uh, unjust punishment unless jesus is himself god taking this on himself, uh, putting himself in the place of, of human pain and, and, and suffering and sin. Um, so I, I, and that besides, the first connection between God and human beings, is it, it, the first intimate connection is, is Christ himself. Um, the cross builds on that to take away the blockages for the rest of humanity. But it's God who's doing that, not a human being who's kind of stepping into the breach because they're particularly good.
1: It says something about the nature of the salvation that God offers to us, which is not just a a kind of change of status, a sort of abstract thing, but it's it's actually drawing us into fellowship and this kind of intimacy and and communion with 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 Him. In that, you know, what what the Nicene Creed says, in that, you know, that, that when we look at Jesus, we're looking at someone who is both God and human in the one person. And obviously that has to be then worked out in Chalcedon in 451 and all the kind of implications of that, how that works. But you know, we're given this picture of, you know, in Christ, God and humanity come together. These two things that seem to be totally opposite to one another and have no connection, they 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 come together in the same person. And therefore, by being incorporated into Christ by the Spirit, and that's a later Part of the creed, we'll come on to that in a few weeks' time. Um, you know, we're invited into to fellowship with God, into communion with God. And I guess what Arius had done, which is try to draw a strict line between God and humanity, that these two cannot mix. They are kind of you know apart from one another. And if you like, you know, um Nestorius did something similar a little bit sort of later on in, in theological history. And um, what Nicaea does is brings them together and say, actually the salvation into which we are invited is not just a sort of change of status within ourselves. It is actually fellowship with God. Um, in the coming together of humanity and, and, and divinity in Christ, we're invited into that fellowship. We're invited to become one with Christ who is the son of the father. Therefore, we can become sons and daughters of the father uh, ourselves as well. So it seems a, to it's be a much richer vision of salvation that, than, than we might find otherwise.
0: And it takes it back to that first clause, doesn't it? And um, The reason why we exist is because the father of the son draws us, and that's what creation is for, to be drawn into this relationship um, with the god who does who doesn't make creation and then and um, steps steps back and leaves it to itself but who comes to live in it in order to draw it into that relationship and and it it is vital isn't it that the cross is uh, is um, the work of god this is um this is human beings trying um to be as always in charge of the world this is our brokenness and our sinfulness that creates Um, uh, that creates the cross, that um, demands the cross. And again, God is refusing to let that be the last word. Um, Human brokenness uh, sinfulness, unfaithfulness is not the last word about creation. Um, It's always God's word uh, that is the truthful word about creation, God who raises Jesus from the dead. in a
2: sense, um, the incarnation is what creation was always aiming at and driving at, or what God was always aiming at and driving at in creation. Uh, in some, um, Old Testament scholarship recently, which has suggested that, that the creation account is, is, is about the building of a temple, that the creation is really a temple in which God lives uh, or intends to live. Um, and, and, and finally in the incarnation, you, ha- you have that happening in a way that was probably never dreamt of uh, until that point, but is what creation is for. Um, and it's going to be increasingly that until the day when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, as the waters cover the sea, i.e., can be kind of drenched in it. Um, but that's what creation is for. It, it is a temple.
1: Hmm. You've ranged over quite a lot in half an hour. We've done. Um, yeah, even then, we've only just begun to scratch the surface of this little bit of the creed. And I'm conscious that we've actually we actually only really covered half of the article about Jesus and the Creed. There's all going kind of to be other stuff about um, uh, being crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death and was buried, and third day rose again and so on. So we might come on to that next time around. We're going to kind of draw stumps on this one um, because we've uh, run out of our time. Um, we could go on talking about this for, forever, as we've always done. I don't know how many GodPods we've done now, but we haven't run out of words, and we're never going to run out of words on this one uh, either. But um, anyway, it's been fascinating to talk, as always, Jane and Mike. Um, it's I, I always find GodPod fun, even if no one listens to it at all. It's always interesting. To we're hear. having fun. Yes, we are having fun, and hopefully, those <laughs> of you all listening to happens, it, really? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we will be back again with uh, another episode of god pod um just working our way through the creed and ruminating on its importance and significance so um thank you for those of us for those of you who are out there listening to this and uh, we'll be back again before too long so it's goodbye from me
2: oh
0: and 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 me
1: and And you as well
2: i i i i said it while you were saying it jane i think we were
0: Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.